All right. Thank you guys for being willing to um, chat a little bit and to talk amongst yourselves. Um, if you want to go ahead and start making your way back to your seat, that'd be great. Uh, one of the things that psychologists, um, I think, appropriately teach us is that in relationships, whether that's in parenting uh, or in marriage, we need a combination of both support and challenge. And what that means is that in a, in a husband or in a wife or in a father or in a mother, you need support. Like you need that parent to come along and to be there for you, to listen to you, to empathize with you, to validate you, um, to, to provide you with emotional support, relational support, all these things. However, if you just have a relationship that's all support and no challenge, then you frankly probably end up with someone who uh, is going to struggle with narcissism, to be honest with you. You also need the other side of that equation. The other side of that equation is you need somebody who loves you enough to be willing to challenge you, right? The proverb says that wounds from a friend can be trusted. And so what happens is in church or in scripture, as we look at Jesus, we see there's always a combination of those two things. He's not only uh, declaring John 3.16 that those who trust in him will be saved, but he's also warning us of harmful and destructive patterns of life. Um, we're going to see that in a passage of Scripture that I'm going to read here in just a moment. That is a combination of those two things. Uh, before we begin with that and entering into that uh, difficult combination of both support and challenge, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for each of the people that are here. Um, we thank you uh, just uh, for the people that love you and who want to see your kingdom come and they want to see your will be done and they want to glorify you, Father. I thank you for Catherine and the work that she's putting in with all the volunteers um, on God's theater. Uh, Father, we thank you for the relationship that Jay and David have with one another. We thank you for David's ministry and the ministry with his family. We just pray that you'd bless and take care of them and protect them. Um, and Father, for the rest of us, as we go about our lives of um, working and parenting and being students, Father, we pray that, that everywhere that we see ourselves, we might see ourselves um, as agents of redemption and restoration, that our normal everyday lives would be just as missional um, as a pastor or a missionary's father. Please help us to, to see the truth of that. This morning, Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be upon us and that we would experience you, um, the author of creation, the author of reality this morning. Father, I pray that no one would be able to leave this place this morning without having an experience with you, the living God. We pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I, I don't know, I've never seen that show, but I ran across that online. I thought it was curious, interesting. Um, I thought especially curious was his sort of understanding or description of how you get to go to the good place. And uh, that there's this, sort of this universe where the negative stuff adds up and the positive stuff adds up. And if the people that have the you know, most positive scores get to go to the good place. I thought it was interesting that one of the things you could get the most amount of points for was being a Cleveland Browns fan. So I don't know if there are any football fans in here that are Browns fans, but I think being a Chargers fan is just beneath that. Anyway, so, but it, it ended there, if, as you sort of uh, noticed, with uh, sort of a, a question, you know, what happens to those people who don't make it here? And he goes, ah, you don't want to think about that. And, and that's honestly very much how we treat this concept of, uh, of hell. We are offended in our culture by the idea of hell. We are, we don't want to think about it. We're offended by it. It's what most people and theologians in our world would call a defeater belief. For people in the West, we think about hell and we think, man, I'd be a Christian if it weren't for hell. Like, I don't know that I can believe in a God who actually affirms this idea of hell. Now, what's curious and what's interesting about that 
and said, if you come from the East, then you have no problem with the idea of hell. That's not a defeater belief for you in the East. It is a defeater belief for us in the West. What's a defeater belief for the people in the East uh, who have sort of come from a shame and honor culture is mercy and grace. They look at mercy and grace, and they're like, how in the world could a righteous and just God just let people off the hook? And that's the offensive thing for them. There was a talk where Tim Keller was talking about this idea of hell, and he had a, a friend of his who was um, South Korean, and he turned to his friend who was a South Korean, and he said, what do people in South Korea think about mercy and grace? And he's like, oh, man. He's like, that's the hardest thing for them to overcome. They're totally okay with a God of justice and a God of wrath. They're totally okay with hell, but mercy and grace, no way. The bigger issue with this concept of hell that we're going to look at in just a few minutes that I allowed Krista graciously to introduce to you guys through the New City Catechism this morning is that Jesus actually talked about hell more than anything else, right? So clearly, he thought it was massively important. Unfortunately, in our culture, most people have a tendency to really like Jesus. They think of him as a social activist like Gandhi or MLK, and they think he's great. But the truth is, it's incredibly difficult to call yourself a follower of Jesus and not accept what he believed to be true about where certain people will spend eternity. It just seems so contradictory. Here's what Dorothy Sayers had to say about this idea of hell and Jesus. She said this, There seems to be a kind of conspiracy to forget or to conceal where the doctrine of hell comes from. The doctrine of hell is not medieval priestcraft. Medieval priestcraft is good terminology. For frightening people into giving money to the church, it is Christ's deliberate judgment on sin. We cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. In other words, what she's saying there is she's saying, how can you follow Christ and not agree with this concept that he so clearly believed in? Now, in just a moment, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 16, where Jesus is actually going to be talking about this concept of hell. He's going to be doing it through what we would call a parable. And so a parable is essentially a story that's intended to sort of sneak around your uh, sort of conscious, objective thought and to make its way into your heart to the backside of your brain. And in particular, in the context of Luke chapter 16, Jesus is talking to Pharisees. And immediately preceding this conversation with the Pharisees, he's actually calling them on the carpet about two things. One, he's saying, you guys love money, and your love of money is actually keeping you far from God. And not only that, he addresses divorce because the Pharisees were well-known for sort of being able to offer divorces up to whoever wanted it for whatever reason. And so essentially what Jesus is doing is you prize your wealth and your freedom over God, right? You, You love those two things more than you love God. That's the context of this parable that Jesus is getting ready to tell. So join along with me, if you will, reading Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. For those of you who know a little bit about this story, it's usually called the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It's where this poor man Uh, sits at the gate or lies at the gate of this wealthy man, and his whole life this wealthy man just ignores the poor man. They both die. The wealthy man goes to hell, and the poor man goes to heaven. So jump along with me, and if you will, I'll begin reading in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And so right away Jesus is giving us a vivid image of the wealth of the rich man. It says he's dressed in purple. And so the dye that would have made this you know, purple dye was taken, extracted from these little snails. And so you had to extract a lot of purple from a lot of snails in order to get clothing that was dyed purple. It was well known in the ancient Near East for being very expensive as a color to make. 
And not only that, but this man was dressed in linen, which is this you know, cotton that's been imported from Egypt. And it says that he didn't just eat healthy, he didn't just eat well, it says that he feasted sumptuously every day. And so the picture here is that this wealthy man lives his life in extreme luxury every day, right? And it's intended to be contrasted with the life of this poor man who every day lies at the entrance to his gated home, verse 20. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired or yearned to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, Jesus is really painting a contrast here. And so you've got this wealthy man who's seen as just sort of extreme wealth. But here you have a description of this man's poverty. So the word poor here means to crouch or to cringe. It's sort of the image of a beaten street dog, right? That's the literal interpretation of it. he's this fearful beggar. He crouches, he cringes at the gate of this wealthy man. And not only that, but it says that he was laid at this gate. Now, that word laid is actually taken from the Greek word balo, which actually means to be thrown out or to be dumped like a chamber pot, to be sort of thrown away. And so, this man was unceremoniously dumped every day at the gate of this wealthy man. The fact that he lie at the gate or lay at the gate was a sign that he was crippled as well. He was also covered with sores. He was covered with ulcers. He yearned. He longed to eat the crumbs, the scraps which fell from the rich man's table. And the only creatures that paid him any attention were these street dogs who came and licked his sores. This poor man was destitute. He was crippled, and he was neglected by everyone, even and especially the wealthy man. Verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So the Pharisees, to whom Jesus was primarily talking here, these religious people of the day, would have been absolutely okay with everything up until this point, right? They believed that if you were a good Jew and were appropriately religious, appropriately religious, that you'd be rewarded with material blessing, right? It was a sign that you were being blessed. They were the original health and wealth gospel preachers. On the other hand, they believed that poverty and a life that sort of seemed like it was cursed was the result of sin and of God removing his blessing from an individual. So this part of the story would have actually begun to shock the Pharisees. They would have been sort of uh, dealing with some cognitive dissonance in their minds. The poor man is in heaven and the rich man is in hell. What, what in the world, right? But again, that's the point of a parable is to sneak into the back door of your brain. Verse 24, and he called out, that is the rich man, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And so again, notice the irony of this story that Jesus tells and the story and the irony here in particular. In life, the poor man begged for mercy in life and received none. In death, the rich man begs for mercy and receives none. And just a reminder that this is a parable. It's an earthly story intended to teach a spiritual reality. And so in parables, not every sort of facet of the earthly reality matches up with a facet or a tenet of the spiritual reality. For example here, Jesus really is speaking symbolically or metaphorically. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In other words, that until the resurrection, um, heaven 
is ultimately a disembodied state, as is this destination of hell. And so things like physical thirst, water, and even the poor man's finger, they're actually all symbolic. It doesn't mean that the suffering of hell isn't real. It's just that what's being spoken of here is metaphor. It is symbolism, but it definitely demonstrates um, agony. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And so one of the most terrifying things of this passage or this narrative Uh, is ultimately this idea of suffering, right? That that makes sense, but it's also permanence. It's that this great chasm is fixed. It feels very final, right? It feels very much like the end. It's described as impassable so that no one can pass from one side to the other. So it's terrifying that hell involves anguish, but maybe what's even more terrifying is the complete absence of hope that's being described here. T.S. Eliot, no particular strong Christian in his own right, said about hell, He says, what is hell? Hell is oneself. It's alone. The other figures in it are merely projections. There's nothing to escape from and nothing to escape to. One is always alone. It's this feeling, this picture of the absence of hope, hopelessness. Verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him, that is Lazarus. So he's still looking at Lazarus as if he's a servant. Send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So when the rich man comes to grips with the fact that his fate is sealed, he turns his thought towards his family, and he begs Abraham to send Lazarus to his family home to warn them about hell. And Abraham responds by saying, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. The rich man responds essentially by saying, that's not going to do it, right? That's not enough. And so hidden in his rebuttal to Abraham is actually an indictment or an attempted indictment upon God, blaming God for insufficient data. If only we had more, we would have known, we would have made a different choice. And don't miss the irony of verse 31, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Of course, Jesus was absolutely right. Jesus rose from the dead, and still the Pharisees didn't believe in him. And Jesus had already raised Lazarus from the dead. We read that in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, in fact, tells how the Pharisees responded to Lazarus after he had risen from the dead. We're told that It says this, it says, so the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. In other words, we're not ready to follow Jesus because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. In fact, we killed Jesus, we're going to have to kill Lazarus too. That's how they responded to someone who rose from the dead. It's a heavy passage, right? If you're not feeling uncomfortable, you probably should be. If you're not feeling uncomfortable, it's because you're on your phone looking at something else, right? This is heavy. What do we see Jesus teaching in this parable? The truth is I could probably focus on six, seven, eight different things. I'm going to focus on three things. First is this. This life, this life comes to an end for all of us. This life for you and for me comes to an end for each and every one of us. Look at verse 22. 
The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. We all die. 100% of us are going to die. We're going to pass away. And you may think, well, okay, I, I intellectually acknowledge that. Why bother making this point? Why bother? Because even though we all know we're going to die, we rarely think about it, much less ponder what really will happen when we die. Woody Allen, um, filmmaker, has a great quote. He said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens, right? Frank Brock, who was the uh, president of Covenant College when I was there and has also served as a mentor for me, um, worked for the Covenant College Foundation. And one of the things he would do is he would go meet with people in the wealthiest 1%. And he would go meet with them and talk about estate planning because uh, essentially what he would do is he'd say, hey, look, when you die, either uh, a huge percentage of your income called the death tax is going to go to the government, in which case you have no control over where it goes, or if you choose, you can actually set up a trust and will that same 40% to a nonprofit of your choosing. So it could be Covenant College, but it could also be MTW. It could be any other number of different you know, organizations. But one of the things that I was up on the mountain not too long ago, and I was asking Frank about it, and he told me, he said, you'd be amazed, Brian. He said, almost without exception, all of these incredibly wealthy individuals that I meet with do not want to think about death. They're terrified about it. And rather than planning for it or wanting to talk about it, they just stick their head in the sand and they just sort of let it happen to them. They're terrified about this idea of death. They don't even want to think about it. Scripture is interesting in that it forces us to think about death. It presses us to think about death, the reality of death. Psalm 90 verse 12 is one of my favorite verses. It says this, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In other words, think about it, ponder it. Think about what it is you want to achieve in this life and what it is that you hope for it. Think about death. When we truly come to grips with the brevity of our lives, then we can begin to think about what really, really matters in this life and what truly matters after this life. This life comes to an end for each and every one of us. That's one of the primary takeaways. Second is this, that our destination after life will be either heaven or hell. Again, this is, this is Jesus, right? This is not BP. You got a problem with this? I turn you to Jesus, and I invite you to talk to him. Here's what verses 22 and 23 say. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And so again, we've already talked about the contrast here, but look a little more at the contrast that Jesus paints between these two men. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. This term, Abraham's side, is used only one place in Scripture, and it's actually it's right here. The Pharisees would have understood very intuitively that this was an idiom or a figure of speech for paradise or for heaven. Look also at the care with which this poor man is treated. In life, he was dumped at the gate of this rich man. But in death, he's gently carried to heaven by angels. On the other hand, look at the rich man. He dies and he's buried. He's placed in the ground. And whereas the poor man is in heaven, we find that the rich man is in hell in torment. Literally in the Greek, it's in torments, in plural, separated from those in paradise and fully conscious of his status of suffering and separation. 
the question I think has to be asked, is Jesus being unkind? Is he being mean here? Is he being manipulative with people? You know, is he like a parent who uh, would tell their story, their kids stories about the boogeyman to try to get their, their kids to behave? Is that what's going on here? Or is Jesus lovingly warning us of the very real and final destination of everyone, either heaven or hell? We all die. Heaven or hell is the final destination for each of us. And then finally, third point, our final destination will be based upon our hearts. Our final destination is actually based upon our hearts. I'm going to jump back and look at, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 15. These preceded Jesus telling the parable. He says this, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the, in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight, right? Ultimately, our final destination will be based upon our hearts. It's always important when reading the Bible to look at what immediately precedes a particular narrative or account. That's what we're doing here. And in this case, just before this parable, Jesus diagnoses the Pharisees' hearts. They loved money more than they loved God. Because what mattered most of them was money, their hearts were far from God. And because their hearts were far from God, the Pharisees hadn't experienced God's grace and mercy. And as a result, they weren't concerned about showing grace or mercy to others who were in need. Right? It's one follows from the next. Our actions always flow out of the reality of our hearts. Right? The way that we speak, the way that we act, always flow out of our hearts. I re- recently listened to a clinical psychologist and uh, he talked about working with certain patients. And he said, when you work with patients, he said, sometimes it's very clear. They're able to articulate exactly what's going on in their heads and in their hearts. And you can actually then begin to figure out their actions based upon what they tell you. He said, most patients, however, just give you sort of this giant tumbled blob of spaghetti where everything's very intertwined. And he said, it's very difficult at times to find out what it is that they really think and what they really believe. And he said, in those instances when you can't tell from someone's words what's going on with them or what's going wrong with them, he said, what you can do is you can look at their actions and you can reverse engineer from their actions back into their hearts. That's what Jesus is doing here. It's clear that what's most important to the Pharisees is their freedom. Not only was there a conversation about money, there was a conversation about divorce. It's clear that what was most important to the Pharisees was comfort. It's clear that what was most important to the Pharisees was their reputation. It's clear that what was most important to the Pharisees was their wealth. They choose each of those things over loving God and their fellow man. And as a result, God gives them the desires of their hearts, even though he knows exactly where that will end, right? In The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis addresses this pretty artfully, I think. C.S. Lewis spoke to those who would argue against the doctrine of hell. He says this, In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs, give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that that is exactly what he does. He adds on to this statement an oft-quoted 
uh, quote where he says this, the damned are in one sense successful, rebels to the end. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom that they've demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. Interesting concept of hell. Tim Keller affirms this similar concept of, of hell in The Reason for God when he says, it's a travesty to picture God casting people into a pit who are crying, I'm sorry, let me out. The people would rather have their freedom as they define it than salvation. Their delusion is that if they glorify God, that they would somehow lose power and freedom. But in a supreme and tragic irony, their choice has ruined their own potential for greatness. Hell is, as Lewis says, the greatest monument to human freedom. As Romans 1.24 says, God gave them up to their desires. All God does in the end with people is give them what they want most, including freedom from himself. What could be more fair than that, Lewis writes? There are only two kinds of people, those who say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Now, this is not even scratching the surface of this topic. There are long books that have been written on this. There are segments of books that have been written on this very passage. And so I think right now we have to just ask the question, what can we take away from this this narrative, from this story? I think the first thing that I would ask you to take away from this narrative, this parable, is I'd ask you to feel the weight to feel the weight of God's holiness and to feel the weight of our sin. Some of you know that last um, summer I got the chance to spend about three months doing a sabbatical. And in that sabbatical, I read a ton and um, listened to podcasts and uh, was able just to sort of think long thoughts in a way that I haven't gotten the chance to do in a long time. And one of my thoughts that I came out of the sabbatical with was this idea that if hell is real— And if Jesus had to die for our sins, then God is much holier than we realize, right? If hell is real, if Jesus had to die for our sins, then God is much holier than we realize, and our sin is much more serious than we realize. Just let the weight of that sink in for a moment, right? Let's let's get Jesus off the felt board. Let's get Jesus out of the children's Bible And think for a moment of the gravity of the holiness of God. Think for a moment about the gravity and the self-destruction and other destructive nature of your sin upon God's world and God's people whom he loves, right? My guess is that until we grasp the weight of God's holiness and the cancerous effect of sin on those that he created and loves, then hell will simply seem like a puzzling overreaction rather than the action of a loving father protecting his children from harm. Feel the weight of God's holiness in our sin. Secondly, I would invite you to see God's grace in this passage. Now, that may seem ironic. Um, It'd be easy to see this parable as mean and manipulative. However, if hell is real, then it would have been unloving, massively unloving, for Jesus not to warn the Pharisees But that's exactly what he's doing, right? Can you imagine the valid indignation of the American people if the tobacco companies had intentionally hidden the cancer-causing effects of smoking, right? They'd be justifiably outraged. And then in this passage, 
we see Jesus actually speaking to the Pharisees, warning them so that they might actually turn their hearts toward them, toward him. See God's grace. And finally, I think the thing to take away from this is to turn to Jesus. The irony of this narrative is that the Pharisees are standing before the Savior and they're pushing him away. They're sneering at him, we're told. They would rather have the comfort and security of money than a life-changing encounter with the Prince of Peace. They would rather have the affirmation of their fellow men than the applause of heaven. They would rather have power and control than to be friends and to be friended by the King of Kings. And we are no different, no different than they are. At least I'm not. This parable is not just intended to jar us into an awareness of the reality of hell, although it surely is that. It's intended to awaken in us an awareness of the reality of our hearts and our need for Jesus, our Savior. Peter and John, when they were arrested after Jesus died, were standing before the Jewish Supreme Court, and they said this, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We must turn to Jesus. Let's take one moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that like a good psychologist, and like a good doctor, and like a good parent, and like a good spouse. Father, you love us enough to tell us what is true, even when we don't want to hear it, even when so much of us wants to push it away, Father. But let us see this parable on hell, Father, as a grace and a mercy. Let us see this parable, Father, as an invitation for us to look at our own hearts and ultimately to cry out, to you and to your son, Jesus, for our salvation, Father. I pray that you would enable us to do so. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.